Now, these things happened as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Welcome to BBC. <laughs> Good morning, church family. Um, as you can see, we are just diving into God's word this morning. Um, we've got a massive chunk of scripture to get through in 1 Corinthians 10. So hang in there with me. If I could pass out chocolates and lollies, I would. But, um, but just hang in there. But can I just say how um, wonderful it is to see your beautiful faces here in person this morning, man. We are so stoked. We are just so stoked. And I've said this many times before, but it just hasn't been the same without you, literally. So it's so good to have you and welcome to our online community as well. We are so um, aware that you're there and mindful of you. So let me pray for us on that note. God, it says in your word where two or three are gathered, you are in the midst and ever keep us mindful that you are here right now. And so, God, my prayer is that you would open up the ears and eyes of our hearts to lean in and to listen. And, God, it's, it's deep stuff. And so I just pray that whoever on the sound of my voice would, that you would um, bring something specific for them, a rhema word, something they could take away and be encouraged by and be transformed by. We love and we honor you for your fame and for your renown. And as always, Lord, have your way, have your way, have your way. And all of God's people said, Amen, amen, amen. So I hope you've been able to notice what Paul is doing here in these passages. Paul is telling the story of Israel in such a way to show the parallels between the Hebrews and the Corinthians. And Paul says that these things happened as examples. Now that word examples in the Greek is the word patterns. So examples and patterns, patterns and examples. Their story and what happened to them serve as examples for the Corinthians and for us. In other words, oops. In other words, it happened and it happens. It happened a long time ago and the people were saved by God. They experienced God in some incredibly powerful ways. They knew what it meant to be dramatically rescued. And yet, those exact same people turned to sin and ended up dead in the wilderness. It happened a long time ago, and it happens. And what Paul is getting at in this chapter is that now the Corinthians are kind of flirting with the same sorts of sins that put Israel dead in the desert. And Paul is going to continue to elaborate on the Hebrew story, and in doing so, elaborates the Corinthian story, and in doing so, elaborates ours. So let's unpack that for a bit. In verse 7, he said, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So if you're taking notes, sin number one is idolatry. 
Here is just the briefest of summaries of these stories that Paul is referring to in the Old Testament. So I encourage you to go back and um, read them for yourself. But Paul is referring um, in that passage to Exodus 32, where Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to get the law and the Ten Commandments. Israel gets bored down below, and they turn to idolatry. And it kind of reminds me of that old saying some of your seniors might know, um, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Yeah? In other words, go play outside, kids, before you break something. Go on. Now, Aaron, who's like second in charge, folds like a lawn chair and sculpts a golden calf for the people to worship. And then the people sit down to eat and drink, and the text says they got up to indulge in revelry, which is a euphemism for they had an orgy. In other words, total depravity. Um, and Paul is like, that's what happens when God's people turn away from God to idolatry. And just like the Hebrews, you're kind of no different, Corinthians. You have been going back to the temples where idol worship is rampant. And in verse 8, Paul says, you must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Sin too. Sexual immorality. Now, Paul is referring to the story in Numbers 25, where the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel. And then they eat meat sacrificed to idols. And after that, they turn away from worshiping God, from worshiping Yahweh, to worship the Moab gods, little g. And as a result, God sends a plague into Israel's camp, and he kills over 20,000 Hebrews. And Paul's like, man, that's what happens when God's people turn to sexual immorality. And look at you, Corinthians, you're kind of no different. What's going on at the back of those temples you are going to? Now remember, church, Craig's talked about this, that the Corinthians are living in a pluralistic culture. And even though they have come to know Jesus, they are going back to the temples, back to the idol feasts where all sorts of dark and upside down and twisted things are going on there. And Paul goes on. He says, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. <laughs> Sin number three, testing the Lord. Now, what's that about? Now, testing the Lord is the opposite to trusting the Lord. Now, trusting God is when we submit to God's will for our life, especially during hard and difficult situ um, situations, and praying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But testing God is when we argue with God, when we shake our fists at the sky, and when we question God and we treat God like our own personal cosmic vending machine who just exists to please us. And what happens to God's people when they relentlessly tested him? The text says they were killed by snakes. <laughs> now, if you think the Old Testament has some crazy stories, you are so right. Man, it's, got, it's full of them. Um, Paul tells the story of Numbers 21 where, there, where Israel questions and argues and tests God when they say, why have you rescued us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. So <laughs> God sends water and he sends bread. He sends food. But God also sends poisonous snakes into the camp to kill thousands of Hebrews. And Paul's like, that's what happens 
when God's people test the Lord. Look at you, Corinthians. You're kind of no different. There's a famine on right now, when, and you hear that there's free meat being offered at Poseidon's temple. And instead of trusting the Lord for your provision, you're heading back to the temples. And Paul keeps going. He says, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Sin number four, grumbling. Now that word grumbling can be translated murmur or speak under your breath or whine. Now this verse isn't referring to any particular story because whining, complaining, grumbling really became Israel's disposition even after all that God had done for them. Now, I know none of you struggle with that at all. None of us struggle with that, but we have friends who do. We have friends who do. <laughs> we do. Now, notice, Paul is being really deliberate here. In the stories he's retelling, he's recounting, he's like the Hebrews grumbled against God and Moses. And look, look at you, Corinthians. You're no different. You've been grumbling against me saying, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? It happened, and it happens. Now, I don't know about you, but I can easily read these stories and think, what's wrong with these people? (laughs) Saved by God out of slavery. Food and water provided for free. Every single day, God's spirit leading the people to the land of promise on the horizon. And they dare complain to God because they don't like the food. Like I said, we would never do that. But we have friends who do. We do. And Paul is like, listen, wake up, Corinthians. Wake up. That story in the desert does not end well. And Paul goes on to say, he says, these things happen to them as examples or written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And Paul is saying that these things happen to them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as examples and were written down as warnings, alert signs, red flags, blinking lights, tsunami sirens, warnings for who? For us. For us. All saying, do not make the same mistakes like they did. It has been said that a wise person not only learns from their mistakes, but the mistakes from other people. So learn, listen, and wake up. And Paul goes on to say, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You see, to Paul, we live in the fulfillment of the ages, meaning the climactic moment in human history at the apex of the human story. And all those earlier bits and pieces of those stories back in Exodus and with Israel and in the Old Testament We're all pointing forward to and leading up to the coming of God into the world as a person of Jesus Christ. And now we live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection at the climax of history as the new people of God. And we are able to look back at those earlier stories from thousands of years ago and look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and look at the examples, and look at the warnings, and learn how to live as the new people of God. And Paul is like, that's how you read your Bible. It is all one unbroken story. And we who are in Christ are now a part of that story. Their story is now our story. But 
Paul's going to give a warning, and he says in verse 12, So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, here's the thing, and here's what I think Paul is saying. That if we walk with God long enough, there are times when you and I can have a tendency um, to begin to think of grace as something we own rather than something that has been lavishly given. I mean, do you see the difference there? We have the grace of God when we place our faith in Christ. But I think over time, we can think of it as something we own, something we deserve, and something we control rather than the gift that has been given to us. And that is why Paul says the person who thinks that they're standing firm, the person who's grown complacent in their faith, maybe is the person who's most likely to fall because they've forgotten that grace is a gift. They've forgotten that grace is always God's initiative on our behalf. From the moment we first receive it to the moment he calls us home, it is a gift. And Paul goes on to say, he ain't done. And he says this. Listen to this encouragement and then the warning. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What a promise and what a breath of fresh air. But notice three things about temptation in verse 13. And he says, first off, you will be tempted. Paul says, when you're tempted and not if, which is all of us. And the latest stats that I read on temptation are 100%. You will be tempted. The good news is, temptation is not sin. It's only when we act on those temptations. The bad news is that you and I will be tempted every day for the rest of our lives because that's the human condition. But secondly, notice, you are not alone. I love how Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And I think the human bent is to think that you and I are the only ones who struggle with that sin. Nobody knows what it's like to struggle with this, that, or the other. Nobody knows what it's like to struggle with identity or sexuality. Nobody else knows what it's like to overcome bitterness from abuse. Nobody else knows what it's like to live alone trying to raise your children. Nobody else knows what it's like to try and salvage a broken, struggling marriage. And you think that you are all alone. And Paul says, no, no, no. You couldn't be more wrong. You may have the maturity to know that in your mind, but you still feel that way. You feel like you are all alone in the universe. You feel the guilt and you feel the shame and you feel like you are drowning. And Paul says, no temptation has seized you or overtaken you except what is common to man. We all struggle with stuff. Now that's not to downplay the gravity of your struggles, but simply to show you solidarity. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. You are not alone. So come out of hiding. Open up. Let us pray with you and for you. Open up with your friends. Live honest and and not in a cave. Don't live masking and faking it. Well, okay, go ahead and mask up, but don't fake it. Don't fake it. Live real and transparent with your people, with your church family, and with your life group. 
And if you aren't part of a life group, get in one. Lead one, join one. It's where you find people who will journey with you. Like how I did that? I'm the life group coordinator, so come see me afterwards if you want. Either way, open up to God. Notice, Paul says that there's always, always a way out. I love how he says that. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, there's good news to that, and there's bad news to that. The good news is you always stand a fighting chance against temptation, always. The bad news is that we have no excuse. We don't get to say, well, there was just no way out of that, man. My boyfriend or girlfriend wanted to come over late at night, and and one thing led to the other, and, well, there was just no way out. And Paul is saying, there's always the way out. Don't open the door. Don't open the door. And some of your translations say, God always provides an escape route or a way of escape. Now, it's so interesting because the word Paul uses here in the Greek is a military term. It's this vivid imagery of an army outmanned and in between a rock and a hard place, um, about to get slaughtered, um, and the army at the last minute sees a way of escape, takes an escape route through the mountains and escapes to safety. And Paul, in essence, is saying, in life, that will always happen to followers of Jesus. There's always the way out. Our God is faithful. And when you're tempted, you have to know this. God is close to you. And when you sin, guess what? God is close to you. <laughs> you may not feel God or pay attention that he's there, but he's right there up close and personal to help rescue you, to help you out of temptation, and to forgive you when you blow it. It's in those moments that God is whispering to us, come on, here's the escape door. Take my hand, let's go. But we have to reach out and take his hand and heed and obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit and follow Jesus out because obedience is always the way out. And when you blow it, obedience is always the way back in. No temptation has seized us that is common to man. Our God is faithful. And here's the climax to what Paul has been leading up to for three chapters. And he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And I love how the Passion Translation puts it. My cherished friends, keep on running away from idolatry. The Monica Carey Translation, pull a Forrest Gump and run, Forrest, run. That's it. When you are tempted, run, man. Run like your life depended on it and go with God's spirit. Now, I don't know what your struggles are and what your temptations are. For the Hebrews, idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling. For the Corinthians in these chapters, it's meat sacrificed to idols in the temples. Okay, so meat sacrificed to idols isn't my top struggle. But if I'm honest, I scored like a three out of four with what the Hebrews struggle with. (laughs) Idolatry, testing God's patience, and grumbling and complaining. I love how Tim Keller, his definition of what an idol is in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and it's brilliant. What a great book, so I encourage you to read that. And he says this. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. You see, Paul is telling you and I to flee from that. 
to flee from idolatry and repent from anything that has become more important to you than God himself. Why? Because he knows the minute we become complacent in our walks and with Jesus, our hearts can quickly become idol-making factories. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, flee from that, flee from idolatry, because the temples are not okay to go to for followers of Jesus. Now, Paul's going to get into the reason why. So hang in there, why this is not okay. And he says in the next verse, he says, I'm speaking to sensible people. You guys are reasonable, aren't you? Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we share, we all share the one loaf. <clears throat> now the word Paul uses here for participate that you may be familiar with is koinonia in the Greek, which means deep, intimate, mutual sharing. And Paul says, when followers of Jesus go to the communion table like we just have, and we give thanks for the cup, and we break the bread, we participate, we fellowship, we koinonia with Jesus. We remember, we connect, we feel, we hear, we sense. We are one with Jesus. That's why it is called communion, because we commune koinonia with God, and we koinonia commune with one another. And Paul is going to continue that train of thought in verse 18, and he says, he says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? That first verse. And Paul's like, think about the Hebrews who go to the temple in Jerusalem and make sacrifices before the Lord. And Paul in the back of his mind is thinking of Deuteronomy where God says, eat the sacrifices in my presence. And they, it's there that the Hebrews connect with God and they feel and they sense and they hear and they eat in God's presence. And Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, that's true for you when you go to the temples. And he says in verse 18, up there, he says, do I mean that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or is that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul is saying that when you go to these temples, and just like in communion, and just like in Jerusalem with, for the Jews, for the Hebrews, you connect with real spiritual beings. And it's not the living God, but with demons. You commune with demons. The idols are nothing. The idols are nothing. But it's what's behind those idols. And Paul says in verse 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul, in essence, is saying, you got to pick. <laughs> Jesus does not compete with demons. It's one or the other, the Lord's table or the idol feasts. It's black and white. Choose. Matt, don't you love it when life is black and white, when it's nice and tidy and clear cut? Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Demons. I get that. I understand that. 
The problem is life is not always monochromatic. It's not always black and white. And in between black and white, we have gray. And lots of life is gray, ambiguous, and fuzzy. And I like how one commentary said that gray areas are more morally neutral, biblically ambiguous, and culturally controversial. Isn't that the truth? Gray areas are all over the place. Now, the gray area that Paul gets into towards the end of this chapter is with the Corinthians meat sacrifice to idols. But it's not um, in the temples because they know, okay, that's off limits. But what about when we go to the marketplace? What about when we go to Corinthian Mart, you know, and you're grocery shopping? Now, remember the background that Craig talked about a few weeks back. He says, at those feasts, you don't give all the sacrifice to the gods. You give one part to the idol on the altar, and the other part, you have a barbecue with your friends and your family. And the last part, you put for sale at the markets. And Jesus' followers in Paul's day were asking all sorts of questions like, well, what about that meat? Is it okay to buy the meat and eat at home in private? What about in public? Or what about with friends? Or what about with friends who don't know Jesus? And with people who are new, do I ask, hey, where does that meat come from? Or is ignorance bliss? And well, since meat sacrifice to idols isn't the burning question on our minds right now, what are some gray areas for us? Now, I'm not even going to get into politics. I'm going to let my senior pastor do that on our behalf. But for example, what about music? There's so many different opinions on music, even worship music. There are Christians who only listen to Christian music or only listen to hymns and nothing modern. What about movies, film, and books? What about Harry Potter? Is it no to Harry Potter, but yes to Narnia? What about clothing? They are enti- there are entire countries and cultures where it's a sin for a woman to wear pants. I mean, even the YWAM Youth of the Mission base that I was at, um, ripped jeans were a sign of rebellion. It really was. What about tattoos and piercings? Ooh, that's a good one. What about drinking? Are wine and beer okay, but not hard liquor? What about yoga? Oh, that's a good one. What about yoga? What about what kind of school I should send my child to, public or Christian? Or is homeschooling the only way to go? And on and on and on it goes. There's all sorts of gray areas. And because we are a diverse group of people with differing ideas and perspectives, what can happen is, if we're not careful, is that followers of Jesus will go searching the scriptures for verses to pluck out of context to back up their view, opinion, or agenda. That's not the way forward. So what is? That is what Paul gets into next. Now watch This is a masterclass. Watch how he delicately appeals to the viewpoints on either side of the spectrum. And he says this. I have the right to do anything you say, but but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now notice the quotation marks around, I have the right to do anything. And like Craig has previously said, Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. And Paul quotes this line like four or five times in this letter. That is why scholars think that the more liberal Corinthians who want to enjoy the city and enjoy the culture are the vast majority of the church in Corinth. Notice, though, how brilliantly Paul uses the yes, but logic here. Or as Kiwis would say, yana. Paul is like, okay, 
I hear what you're saying. I see your point. I hear you say, I have the right to do anything. Yeah, no. Yes, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted, you say. Yes, but yeah, no. Not all things build up and strengthen others in the body. I mean, who here thinks that that presidential debate on Wednesday night, if you saw it, could have taken a leaf out of Paul's book? <laughs> I do. Paul uses this yes, but logic to the Corinthians and in essence says, yes, you are free in Jesus. Absolutely. All of that is true. But you need to understand the point of your freedom. And it's this. You are free not to sin, but from sin. You are free in Jesus, but you are not free to sin. Hey, anything goes, but you are freed from sin, free from slavery, free from death and bondage. You are free from all of that to live the way of Jesus. But secondly, you are free not to do whatever you want to do and what only pleases you, but to do what is best for others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, Paul's going to swing over to the other viewpoint, and he says this. But eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Paul is saying, in essence, when you go to the market, eat whatever you want. You don't need to ask questions. It's just meat. And then he quotes Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. The cow was the Lord's before the temple, and the cow is the Lord's after the temple. And in Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it, what did he say? He didn't say, hey, be careful with that. No, he says it is good. It is very good. And Paul goes on to say, so if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising any questions of conscience. Did you catch it? Notice how Paul is assuming that followers of Jesus in Corinth are in the lives of people who don't know Jesus, are friends with people who don't know Jesus, are in the homes of people who don't know Jesus. What a great reminder for you and I that we are to regularly open up our homes to serve, break bread, and show hospitality to people who don't know Jesus yet. <laughs> Paul says, if an unbeliever invites you over to the meal, feel free to go and eat whatever is put in front of you. But in the next verse, he describes a hypothetical scenario, and he says this. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in, sacri this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to uh, the other person's conscience and not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Most commentaries think that the other person is an unbeliever who is also at this meal and knows that you are a Jesus follower, that you are a follower of the way. And he thinks that it's a sin for you to eat the meat. And so he says to you, he's giving you a heads up. Hey, that meat was offered to Aphrodite last night. Don't eat it. And Paul's like, then stop. Don't eat the meat. Not because it's sin. It's not. It's just meat but because that person thinks it is sin and you do not want in any way, shape, or form to hold them back from the gospel. You want him to come to know Jesus. If I can invite the band out now. And Paul continues. We're on the home stretch. 
He says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's all for the glory of God. Man, that's Paul's whole agenda. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Now that word please here is not referring to people pleasing. It's referring to slaves in the New Testament with, with the idea here is that we are called to serve each other. For, Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. That is what Paul has been after. That is what Paul has been chasing down this whole time. And in the last verse for this morning, and, in, and remember there were no chapter breaks in the original letter, so this is chapter 11, verse 1, and he says this. So, imitate me, watch my ways, follow my example, just as I too always seek to imitate Christ. Live like a missionary, Paul says. Give up freedoms like Jesus and Paul. Lay down your rights. Live for the good of others. And what I love about this text is that Paul, for the most part, doesn't give us a list of rules. He's giving us a mindset, a way to think as followers of Jesus, a way to live, and, wait, and to ask, what is good for the people that I know? What is good for my friends and my family and my neighbors and my coworkers who do not know Jesus? What helps people to come to know God so that they may be saved? Paul says, imitate me as I always seek to imitate and follow Christ. Man, what a challenge. Is the way that I follow Jesus worth copying? And my prayer for us at the end of all of that is this. And it's my prayer, too, for myself. May you and I, may we be people who run with our eye on the prize. May we be people who glean and learn and heed the warnings of those that have gone before us and what happened to them before us in Scripture and in life. Because even though these things happened a long time ago, they still happen today. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. And may we be a people that don't judge each other, but that we encourage one another from becoming complacent in our faith, lest we fall. And may we, when we are tempted, <laughs> may we, and we are tempted, may we take the escape route. And may we, when we blow it, when we blow it, and we will, daily. May we be people who run straight into the presence of God, remembering that he is close. Our God is faithful. He's ready to forgive you. May we be people who imitate Christ in such a way that others come to know him. Amen, amen, and amen. Why don't you stand now as we worship Jesus?